We invite you to take your Bibles again in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 today. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 11. Before we do, I want to remind you of a verse in chapter 1 of Ephesians that may have eclipsed your thinking this morning, and I want to make sure that it's on your mind because chapter 2 obviously alludes to it. If you'll uh, consider with me verse 1, but rather verse 10 of chapter 1, you'll note that the apostle says in that paragraph that there is a plan for the fullness of time, and that plan is God's plan, and that plan is to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, I want to suggest to you that that phrase, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth, is a key, perhaps the key, but certainly a key to understanding what God is doing in your life today. God intends to take the work of God and bring that to bear in my life and somehow orient my life, use my life, bring things to the front in my life, issues, circumstances, conversations, experiences, to bring all that together with your life and with your life with your life. And God intends to take all of our lives together and to accomplish a plan. Now, I think about the complexities of running the world. <laughs> I have a hard time running my own life. I dabble occasionally in running Susan's life. I used to dabble in running my children's life. They got married. That changed. Then we have grandchildren. I dabble in running their lives. Usually involves Christmas and birthdays. And then I'm a pastor. I'm putting up with you guys. You're putting up with me. And then I think about the world. Hmm. And I realize that I don't have the capacity for the world because I really don't have the capacity for even my piece of the world to do it very well, to do it without shrapnel, do it without stubbing my toe again and again and again and again. Neither do you. But it turns out there is a plan. And it's God's plan, and God is working His plan and doing His plan. And it is a profound mystery to me, to you, because we have a tendency to just live in our little piece of existence. And we say, this is about me. Particularly in the Western world, there's this so-called concept of rugged individualism. It's all about me. Well, that's good for you, but what about for me? Or that may be good for you, but that's not the way I view it. And so I become, as it were, an arbiter of my own reality. I get to decide what's important. I get to decide what's true. I get to decide what's relevant. I get to decide what matters because this is me, my life. This is my body. This is my mind. These are my words. These are my thoughts. 
This is, these are my choices, my behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. All of that grows out of this soil of individualism. And that the spirit of that soil is that God does not have authority. And that any authority that God places over us, whether it's parents, right? Or even in marriage, or maybe even in the church, or the government, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Whatever authority that God authorizes over us ultimately does not have sway. Because I am an individual, and I have individual authority. And no one can take that from me or usurp that over me. And yet, the Bible says that God has a plan. And that you're a part of the plan. I'm a part of the plan. And that somehow his plan is to unite us all in Christ. Now that, that will, if you dwell on it a minute, that will enlarge your mind. It will make a difference to recognize that somehow your life is bigger than whether or not you have money for your mortgage. Or where you're going to eat lunch today. Or whether your football team won yesterday. Mine didn't, tragically. Tragically. But our life is not these things. It includes these things, but our life is not defined by these things. Our life is not defined by the things that are weightier than those things. Like our physical health. Our life is not defined by that. Many in this room are sick or will be sick or won't be sick. I think that about gets us. And if we live long enough, we'll all get sick. We'll ultimately get sick and die. Something will happen. Some pathological circumstance will come and we will die. It may be in our sleep, but I assure you, death is still a pathological end for all of us. We are not made for eternity in this body and in this life. Instead, what the Scripture describes is that we find ourselves in a battle. I've said it before. It just needs to be said again and again and again. The Bible is a book about fighting. Everywhere you turn, there's a fight. Israel against the Philistines, or Israel against the Amalekites, or Israel against the Moabites, or Israel against, and you just pick your ite. So it's Abraham against those guys, and it's, it, it's Jonah against the Ninevites. And, and there's argument, there's prejudice, there's judgmentalism, there's anger, there's violence, there's, there's rape and murder and incest and trash all through the pages of the Bible. By the way, that's one of the ways you know the Bible is true, because the Bible is not some sugar-coated, syrupy digest of only the good stuff. Years ago, I had a mentor who followed me in our, our publications. I hadn't seen him in about five years, and he, he saw me. He said, Greg, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing great. He said, I know, because your newsletter is nothing but positive. Have you ever noticed that about the church newsletter? It's always positive. I've never written a column saying, I am so mad. I am so bummed out. I've never written a column like that. Instead, I always write columns like, isn't God great? That's the way preachers talk. 
That's the way churches talk. Isn't God great? But you know, in this room, there are people right now who are still trying to decide if God is great. People watching online are still trying to decide if God is great. Because you see, life is a battle. It hurts. It's full of junk. It's full of sorrow and difficulty. It turns out that the Old Testament is still alive and well in our flesh. Because people are arguing and fussing and fighting and struggling and getting discouraged and finding themselves in the dumps and don't know what to do. And they find themselves overwhelmed by sickness or some enemy or some tragedy or some fear or a thousand other enemies we could mention. And yet the Bible says God has a plan. A plan. Who in the world could have a plan for my sorrow? Who in the world could have a plan for my sickness? Who could have a plan for my grief? I don't plan to be sorrowful. I don't have a plan for people I love that, that they're going to have tragedy. I'm not going to send my children willfully, knowingly, into harm's way. And yet God has a plan that seemingly doesn't shield us from harm's way. So I'm telling you, there's two kinds of people in this room, and they're here every week. There's a small group of people that work real hard at trying to believe that God is trustworthy, and they see the hand of God in what they do and what is being done. And they... They trust God. They believe God. They hope in God. They, they somehow see the deep water. And they trust God for what's down there. And then there's another group, and I suspect it's maybe a little larger sometimes, that just is just trying to get through the week. They're, they're, they're shallow. They're superficial. God is love, and God is only love, and God has to be loving, and Anything that I decide is not loving is therefore wrong. And so if, if there is a God and he allows that unloving thing by my definition, then I can't, I can't follow him. I can't hang with him. I can't, can't go along with him. Of course, that's the attitude of the world. That's not the attitude of the Bible. Instead, in the Bible, you have people who have tragedy after tragedy after tragedy who come to the end of their lives and say... The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know where you are today, but the Ephesians says God has a plan. And that you're in the plan. And that the stuff that's going on in your life is part of the plan. And that God is doing stuff that may or may not make sense to you today, but it nonetheless makes perfect sense to God. And he knows what he's doing. So there is this plan, and you'll see in chapter 1, verse 10, that that plan is to sum up or unite all things in Christ. That somehow God intends for your life to be about Christ, and your life to be about Christ, and my life to be about Christ. Somehow, we get to live for Christ. We've been bought with a price so that our life would be Christ's. 
We're owned now by Christ. So if he owns us, he gets to use our lives. He gets to, if you will, add our lives to the puzzle. I've likened it to a bit of a Jenga puzzle, right? It, it doesn't, it's not one of those beautiful landscapes that you do in a jigsaw puzzle. It's more of a Jenga puzzle. It's just a bunch of pieces that look kind of jagged and sticking out. And, and you say, look at that. What is that? That's a puzzle. Well, what do you do? Well, you just manipulate pieces and try not to cause it to fall down. Well, God's in charge of making sure it doesn't fall down, but he, he manipulates the pieces because he wants to and intends to, and he will unite all things in Christ. So we live on a battlefield. We live in the midst of a war. Why does the apostle Paul says, I have fought the good fight? Because it's a battle. It's a battle to be righteous. It's a battle to believe in God. It's a battle to look to Christ. It's a battle to hope in eternal life. It's a battle to see beyond this life and to say that it's more than just about me and mine and my stuff. All of which brings us ultimately to chapter 2, verse 11. He is explaining how God intends to unite all things in Christ. Now, this is going to make sense in a minute. I, that was all introduction. <laughs> I want to try to make sense of it. Uh, that's the big picture. Let's get down, in the, if you will, in the trees. Uh, you'll, you'll note some transitions that are going to occur. In verse 11, he's going to use the phrase, one time. At one time, at one time. So he's going to talk about the past. And in verse 13, he's going to make a conjunctional transition. He's going to say, but now, verse 13. And so he, that's where he's going to talk about the present. And then in verse 19, he's going to say, so then, so then. That's where he's going to make his conclusion. So this was true in the past. This is true in the present. Now what? So then. So that's, that's the way this paragraph lays out. Let's read beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God, or rather for God, by the Spirit. So we're going to 
We're going to follow his logic, if you will, this morning in this paragraph and consider how the apostle brings us together. Now, here's the dilemma before we start. There is this battle raging. This is the book, Ephesians 6, and we'll get there eventually, where the Bible says that we don't war against flesh and blood. So your problem is not with your spouse. Your problem is not with your children, your grandchildren. Your problem is not with your neighbor. Your problem is not with your boss. Your problem is not with the government. Your problem is not with your church. Your problem is not with your enemies or friends, co-workers. Your problem is not with that guy who won't get out of your way on the freeway. That's not your problem. Well, those people are real. Those people exist. They are circumstances in your life that you have to deal with, but they are not your problem. The war is not with flesh and blood. It turns out that there's stuff going on that you don't understand, that I don't understand. I don't even, I don't even try to understand. I, I don't, I don't, suggest or pretend that I understand. I just say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have to know that. Don't want to know that. Don't believe that if I did know that, I could understand that, whatever that is. I believe there are things that are above my pay grade and they're above yours too. You are not made to know everything that God knows. You are not. Rule number one, there is a God, and you're not Him. So there's a responsibility to being God that's bigger than your two cents. However valuable you think your two cents are, there's a responsibility that's bigger than yours. So God is warring against principalities and powers in high places. You know, the Bible is a story about that battle. Let me just give you a snippet. The Tower of Babel. You know the story, the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis? Dr. Park has covered it beautifully on our Genesis workshop. You can go back there and listen to what Ivan said and understand it a little more deeply if you'd like to, but the Tower of Babel. The Bible says that, that they built a tower. Don't know exactly what it looked like because all the people who, who knew what it looked like are dead. They didn't write it down, so we don't really know what it looks like. But anyway, so they built this tower, and the purpose of this tower, according to the Scripture, is that we're going to make a name for ourselves. By the way, people still do that. They build these, you know, taller, 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 bigger, 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 you know, and it doesn't matter if it's a house, doesn't matter if it's a building, doesn't matter if it's some other thing, you just keep building bigger, bigger, and the, 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 the agenda is always, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm a big deal, I'm a big deal, I'm a big deal. Well, there are people in the world who are really big deals. They're usually defined by more money, right? That's the world system. So they, they're building this tower, and it's going to be this big, big tower, and it's going to stretch higher than any tower around. And so from miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles away, you can look and you can see that tower and you can say, well, that's where the really VIP people live. That's where the really VIP people, VIP people are. And so there is this great tower. And the Bible says, God says, I'm not going to put up with that. I'm going to destroy that tower. And so as a result of that, God then in judgment upon these for their arrogance, 
scatters them to the four corners of the earth and confuses their language. None of us have any idea what the world would be like if we all spoke the same language. By the way, it wouldn't be English, even though English is perhaps uh, the most popular language in the world today. Uh, if it dates to the ancient world, there was no English, so there, it wouldn't be English. But if we all spoke the same language, then the, if you will, the separation between peoples and people groups wouldn't be as pronounced. Cultures, in part, maybe in large part, are defined by language barriers or language differences. I'm, I'm not like him because I don't speak his language. And therefore, we can't really have a close relationship because we don't communicate. So language is a part of culture, and it's a part of separation of cultures. Sure, there are more elements that go into that, food and clothing and traditions and customs and so forth. I'm not arguing against that, but I am telling you that if we all had the same language, we would all be one people. But God brought a judgment in the book of Genesis against people by confusing their language. Now I ask you, what does God intend to do to change that? And you would quote Ephesians 1.10, which says that God intends through the work of his son to unite all people in heaven and on earth under the work of Christ. He is through Christ going to bring us together. So that today, for instance, we have Christian brothers in India. We've already mentioned Jali Ramai, who we support, and we have many others millions and tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of Christian brothers in India. Thanks be to God. We don't speak their language. The same could be said of virtually any country in the world. We work in Central Asia. We love the people of Central Asia. We're grateful for the work that God has given us there. And we have a profound responsibility and we enjoy the stewardship that God has entrusted to us, but we don't speak their language. It's, it's, it, there's a barrier, and yet God has broken the barrier down because as God supplies people who can help us communicate, we can talk about the very thing that binds us together. It's not geography. It's not language. It's not even culture. It is Christ. Christ binds us together. Now, remember, the agenda of the, of the enemy of God is that these people would grow up and be insubordinate. These people of the world would grow up and rebel against God. That's his agenda in the Garden of Eden. That's his agenda in your life today, that you would grow up and rebel against God, that you would be insubordinate to God, that you'd have no regard for God. You'd have little, little interest in God. And that's the culture and the world in which we live today. So what difference does any of this make? God intends to reverse. God intends to shut up the ignorance the impotence and the insurrection of cosmic powers. God intends to do things in your little old life, my little old life, in our little old church. God intends to do things right here that prove to cosmic powers in heaven and on earth, principalities and powers that are the true war 
He intends to bring us together in such a way that we are a trophy unto God, that we are a proof positive that God is powerful, that God is strong, that the blood of Christ avails for every last one of us, and that God can take people who have nothing in common and no regard for God, who are blind to God, deaf to God, hard-hearted toward God, and he can melt our hard hearts and he can bring us to God. And essentially, these are my words, not God's, but essentially, God can look at the cosmic powers or against him and say, what you got to say about that? You got an answer for that. Your strategy, the world's strategy, is that of the prince of the power of the air. It's a strategy to steal and kill and destroy. And what do we see around the world today? We see people who are polarized. We see people who are angry, people who are murdering, raping, pillaging. We see wars and rumors of wars. And we have seen that and seen that and seen that and seen that. Now, because of communication, we see it more vividly, perhaps. But it's always been there. We live in a war zone. We live in a world where people are arguing and fighting, killing one another, hating one another. And the world says, let's get a new leader and he will tell us what to do. <laughs> it turns out every leader is flawed. Every leader is broken. Every leader is unable to fix it. And yet God says, I got a plan. I got a plan. And my plan is to take people from the four corners of the earth and to bring them together under one, one authority. I'm going to restore order. I'm going to restore peace. I'm going to restore joy. I'm, I'm going to build a kingdom. That's my plan. And I'm going to do it in the work of my son. So he reminds the people of Ephesus, and I remind you here this morning, let's quickly see this. Verse 11, he, there's five phrases here. They're, they're separated from Christ. They're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They're strangers to the covenants of promise. They have no hope, and they're without God in the world. All that in verse 12. Five phrases. Now, that's pretty bad. Separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, they don't have a relationship with God, and they have no hope of having one. Think about the man, the so-called hypothetical man who lives on a deserted island. He's never heard the gospel. He's never heard of God, never heard of Jesus, never heard of Israel. He doesn't know Abraham from Isaac, from Jacob. He doesn't know anything about any of that. He doesn't know anything about the Ten Commandments. He doesn't know Moses from Jonah. By the way, most Americans don't know Moses from Jonah. But nonetheless, he doesn't know any of those, doesn't know any of these stories. We look at, we look at that man and say, what, what happens to him when he dies? The answer is he will give an account to God. He'll give an account to God. And if he has the hope in God, in his life, through the work of Christ, the promise of Christ, then he is converted. You say, well, he's never heard. That's why we're missionary people, because... There is no hope apart from them hearing. They are strangers. 
to God. They are alienated. He's going to use that word later. They are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They are without hope. There is no hope. Why do people act like they're hopeless? Because they are. They think that the answer is more money or more toys. I, I, don't, I, don't, know, I don't know how this happened, but months ago, there was a story on Facebook about some billionaire's yacht. And I mistakenly, admittedly, grievously clicked on that. Do you know what that means now? That means I know the names of billionaires' yachts all over the world because Facebook keeps sending me their pictures. So I know who has the biggest yacht because I keep reading. It's like a drug. I've never owned a boat. I don't want to own a boat, but if I were to own a boat, it would be a 450-foot yacht. Not really. But I, I, I'm a sucker for yacht stories. Because, you know, I mean, there's money, and then there's yacht money. I mean, that is big money. <laughs> but, you know, the common denominator among every person, whether they have money or they don't. If all they have is this life, at the end of the day, they know that all they have is this life. That's, never, that's what they know. Oh, you can pad the walls with a lot of expensive stuff. And to some degree, all of us are guilty. Trying to make our life happier with expensive stuff. Or not expensive stuff. But we are without hope if we don't have God. And the world is a place without hope. And the world keeps holding up banners and saying, hope is found here, or hope is found here, or hope is found here. And the reality is none of those places provide hope. So there's our one time. At one time, the Gentiles were separated from God because they were not Jewish. The Bible is the story, the Old Testament particularly, is the story of God's work among the Jews. But now in the New Testament, there is this great mystery. He's going to talk about it in our when we read chapter 3 next time, he's going to talk about this mystery that God has decided to unveil the rest of the plan. In the fullness of time, God intends to, to put the rest of the plan into gear, and the rest of the plan involves Jesus. So in the fullness of time, God's going to send his son, and he's going to unite all these people who heretofore have all gone to their corners of the earth, and they are living their lives in their various cultures, and they have nothing to do with each other except that they're all lost without hope, alienated from God, and condemned by God, and judged by God because they have mounted an insurrection against God. They have followed the prince of the power of the air instead of the prince of peace. So God has an answer for that. And he's going to thumb his nose, my words, not his, but he's going to point a finger at the cosmic powers, and he's going to say, in the fullness of time, I'm going to send my son, and he's going to change the world. He's going to change the battlefield. It's going to flip. And we were losing seemingly, but we never were because I have a plan. And I'm going to come to the aid of my people. I'm going to serve my people and I'm going to send my own son. This is what he says. So, but now, verse 13, but now in Christ, 
you who once were far off have been brought near, brought near by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Christ, it's a reference to the sacrifice of Christ, by the sacrifice of Christ. What is the purpose of the sacrificial system that's detailed here in the Old Testament? Sheep, bulls, goats, doves die after die. They just die by thousands, tens of thousands of these animals die and they 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 die. What is the purpose of all this blood? Because blood is necessary. Death is necessary. Judgment is necessary because somebody has sinned against a holy God. Somebody's got to pay for that. Something's got to justify that. Something's got to settle the books, settle the accounts. People don't do wrong stuff and just get away with it. Somebody's got to pay for that. But God institutes a system so that you don't have to pay for it. Some sheep dies in your place. But it was never about the sheep, though, was it? It turns out that the blood of sheep doesn't cover the sins of human beings. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't cover the sins of human beings. That was just a pointer, a shadow of what is to come. So this Old Testament system is obsolete when the fulfillment of that shadow walks in. And that is Jesus Christ. So we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, not by the blood of, you know, our little lamb, not by the blood of our goat, but rather by the blood of Christ. He brings us near and he breaks down, breaks down this wall of hostility. By abolishing the law expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. It turns out the cross is for the Jews and the cross is for the Gentiles or for the non-Jews, which is everybody else. Billions and billions and billions and billions of people are not Jewish. And what hope do they have if they're alienated from God and separated from the commonwealth of God and the promises of Israel and so forth? What hope do they have? Well, they have the one who is coming, the one who Israel is to foreshadow, one who looks to God, hopes in God, trusts in God, and now he is making that available to all of us. So what is God doing in the world? He is abolishing the law. He is creating a new humanity. He is reconciling both parts of humanity to God that have been separated since the Tower of Babel. It turns out that God has a plan and that he's working his plan, and you're starring in the plan. But all we do is worry about our mortgage. Or our head cold. Or whether Todd Prather sang a song we like. <laughs> you realize how shallow, how flat we've made our lives? I don't know if you like war movies. I do. I don't know why I like war movies. Susan doesn't like them. But so when she's not looking, I watch them. I like war movies. I like the old ones, not the new ones. And the old ones, there was always a good guy and the good guy won. And the new ones, not so much. I like it when the good guys win. 
But here's what you do in a war movie. You create a problem called the enemy. And you create a savior. That's called whoever he is, you know. He's the guy that comes in. And this is true of westerns. This is true of war movies. This is true of all kinds of... It's a familiar narrative. It's also the narrative of the Bible. You wonder where they got that narrative? We love it when a savior rides in. You say, well, that's... The Bible's just copying Hollywood. Hello. Don't you see that inside humanity... God has placed this innate desire for somebody strong to help them with all their junk. Do you need a helper today? You need somebody to come alongside you and say, look, I got it. Quit stressing, quit fretting. Don't be afraid. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because we're all so easily overwhelmed and outnumbered. And we ask ourselves, what in the world is God up to? Well, I don't know all that God is up to, but I know one thing God is up to, and that is that he allows those various trials, James chapter 1, to drive you to God. And our problem, among other things, is we're trying to solve all our stuff without realizing there's a cosmic battle going on. And in the minds of the enemy, you're just a pawn. He doesn't care about you except to steal, kill, and destroy. But the God of mercy, the God of glory, cares about you. So much so that he gave his only begotten son that you might be reconciled to him. And the barrier of hostility has been removed. And God brings all of us together in the church in order that we might together say, Hallelujah! God of gods loves me. God of gods is at work in my life. God of gods is greater than my trials. And sometimes they're money problems. And sometimes they're relationship problems. Sometimes they're physical problems. Sometimes they're just problems on top of problems. My problems keep having children. What are you going to do? You're going to run from God? You think that's a winning strategy? Not according to the Bible. So then, he says in verse 19. So then... You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the family. You're in the family. Well, I, I wasn't in the family. I wasn't Jewish. I know in the Old Testament, the family's Jewish. But in the New Testament, God has revealed the rest of his plan. He's going to bring all of us together and make us in the same family. And the family matters. It matters today that you're in the family of God. Not because you're related to me, but because you're related to God. God broke down the, war, the, the wall of hostility between you and him. A little temple architecture is worthy of consideration here. You know the temple, the ancient temple which had been destroyed has a holy of holies. That's the innermost place. Oh, that's the place where God dwells. That's going to come back here in a minute. It's the place where God dwells. God is in the middle of the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest goes in there behind the veil one time a year, Day of Atonement. Only. No, no man goes in there. You don't go in there. I don't go in there. You've got to have an intermediary, somebody who goes in there, somebody who has permission to go in there. We'll talk about this tonight when we consider the role of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. You need an intermediary. If you don't have a high priest, you're not getting to God. 
That's the Old Testament. Outside of the Holy of Holies is a larger room, twice the size of the Holy of Holies. That's where the priests would do their work, would be prepared to meet God. So you have these various things that are a part of that room. Outside of that is a court. There would be a courtyard, and people could begin to, they would come and they'd bring their sacrifices full of animals. That's where the priests would actually sacrifice the animals. So they had the burning incense over here, and burning uh, altar over here, and so forth. And these animals in here, and the priests are covered in blood. And all of this is happening inside this outer court in the temple. But outside the temple, we're not in the building now. Anywhere near the building. Some 50 to 100 feet. All the way around the building is a low wall. And that wall separates the temple from the, what came to be called the court of Gentiles. The court of Gentiles. You see, not only the sacrificial system keeps Gentiles away, the architecture of the temple separated people into God's people and those who were not God's people. The court of Gentiles had a wall. Let's give it a name. Let's call it a wall of hostility. You know what happens when your neighbor changes, your new neighbor comes in. The old neighbor didn't have a fence. And the first thing the new neighbor does, he puts up a fence. How does it make you feel? You say, well, you know, he's got a dog. I don't care about that dog. I don't want to see that dog. I don't want to hear that dog. Good luck with that. But anyway, you put up a fence and you say, oh, you can excuse it, whatever. But I'll tell you what happens is it feels like separation, doesn't it? There's no fence that doesn't feel like separation. That's the purpose of a fence. Your place, my place. Fence. There's a wall. Not of super hostility, right? We don't make more of it than it is. But if, if you're a Gentile, you can't get within 50 feet of the temple. All you can do is look across the wall. I wonder what they're doing in there. I wonder what's really going on. Hey, did you see that? What does that mean? What does that mean? Can you imagine you're going to some sporting event and you're not in the game, but you're on a hillside a quarter of a mile away and you're watching the game with binoculars? You say, man, this is exciting. Stop lying to yourself. You'd rather be in the game. There's a wall that keeps you out. So then, you're a part of the household of God. It's the temple of the Lord. It's the dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And it turns out all of that occurs in the church. In the church. Notice he says, built on the foundation of the apostles, Christ the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, meaning the family, joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Temple. Temple is a important word. I'll just show you uh, the New Testament answer to the Old Testament temple. It's in Revelation 21. The last chapter of the Bible is Revelation 22. So we're near the end here. Revelation 21. Hear these words. 
in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to reconcile all of these things together in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place. Where in the world have we heard that? The dwelling place. Ephesians chapter 2 you are now members of the household of God in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. So in Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. With man. God is not remote from man. God is not distant from man. God is in the midst of man, and man is in the midst of God. We're not separated by walls. We're not separated by curtains. We're not separated by architecture. We're not even separated by our ethnicity. In fact, we're not separated at all. We all came to God on the same terms, by the blood of the Lamb. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, crying, pain for the former things that passed away. <laughs> Friend, then and only then will the war be over. But in the meantime, God is doing business in your life, bringing you to God. And he's doing so by joining you to the household of God, to the household of faith. <laughs> All of which brings me to brag on the church for a minute. I close with this. You know, COVID has been the strangest thing in all our lives. And I, I would just, I just bet the house that's true for all of us. It's been the strangest thing. But invariably, because we all had to go online for nine weeks back in 2020 when, uh, we, well, we, we did go online. And so we ramped up here. We, you know, we, we, we have a live stream now. We didn't. We, now we do. We have all kinds of technology. And we bought a lot of equipment and all that. And we're fine. We're, and that's good. And it's here to stay, by the way. I'm not, I'm not in the campus saying, well, let's just shut all that down. It's here to stay. So though you're watching online, you're welcome to continue to watch online. We're glad that you're there. But invariably, uh, preacher's anxiety surfaces. Not with me, because I'm this is not my concern. I don't worry about this stuff. Um, which sounds like I'm trying to be super spiritual, but I'm really not. I just don't worry about it. I just don't. But I got a lot of buddies who do. And, they, and I hear church members talk like this. So every now and then a church member will say, you know, it's really hard to come back to church because it's so convenient at home. You know, coffee, pajamas, couch, and I know what they're saying. They're not trying to build a house on that. And so let's don't build a house on that, okay? I'm not throwing howitzers at anybody. But I am throwing a, a little firecracker, all right? So if the firecracker sounds loud, good. I want you to hear this. You know why staying home 
is not the will of God for your life. Because staying home requires you to separate. As it turns out, God doesn't want you to separate. As it turns out, Jesus came to bring us together. As it turns out, there's cosmic war going on right here. Well, I don't know. You might say, that's just sounds like a long-winded sermon to me, which it is. Turns out, God can even take long-winded sermons and do damage. Praise God. He can take bad singing. There was no bad singing up here today. I'm just a joke. I'm just an illustration. He can take bad singing. He can take bad songs. He can take bad air conditioning. He can take hard benches. We don't have any hard benches. But he can take all the things that people gripe about because it's hard to come to church. I had to get dressed. I had to get up early. Uh, you know, I had to fight the rain and all that. Is it worth it? Let me ask you, is it worth it? If you read the Bible, it is because there's cosmic stuff going on that God intends for his people to gather and he intends for his people to gather because God intends for his plan to be accomplished in Christ and that the manner in which God intends for his, man, his, his plan to be accomplished in Christ is for his people to gather. His people to gather and gather and gather and gather and gather and gather and gather. And it may sound monotonous. It may feel monotonous. It may feel like just what we did a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, or 10 years ago. It may feel like all of those things. But hear me, friend. There's something going on in the heavens that you don't understand. And I want to urge you to take seriously what happens in your church. There are people here who need you. You say, well, I don't need them. <laughs> well, stay home in your pajamas. And tell me how that works out for you. I promise you, friend. We all need each other. And there are people who are not yet us. Who need us. And if all of us. Stay home. There is no us. To welcome them. To us. And the plan of God breaks down when the people of God forget that they are the family of God who gather together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. My hope today is not in the sermon or the preacher or the choir or the singers. And my hope is not in you or the sound system or the lights or the air conditioning or the parking lot or the condition of the parking lot or the money or any of that thing. My only hope is that in all of this chaos that we call life, God, the Holy Spirit is winning a battle because of my little piece of faithfulness.
How important is your part? More than you know. Because God intends to kick Satan in the teeth with you and me and us, the church. You can't do that if you're not here, if you're not with us. I beg of you, lift your eyes, fight hard, finish well, and let's join together one day with God in glory and hear him say, well done, well done. If you don't know Christ today, I pray you'd look to him. He's the one that brings us to God, takes down the wall brings us to Christ, gives us access, makes us part of the family. He's the reason the church is here. He's our God. Hope you know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us and for shepherding us and for blessing us. Pray, God, that you will be magnified in what we do, how we do it, the manner in which we do it, and that you give us grace to lift our eyes to see beyond the mundane, the regular stuff, and see the hand of God. You're working a plan. It's an eternal plan. It's a glorious plan. It's a big plan. It's a plan based in Christ. I pray you make it real to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.